what a privilege to come back again. I was uh, uh, on the way back over, and Grant was driving us back, and wonderful time spending with his family in between services, and thought, this is great. I, you know, now that um, I'm back at Grace Community Church after 21 years of pastor myself, I don't, I'm not preaching in the evenings often. And so this is good to have come and taught the Word of God and be nice and tired and get a good meal, some good conversation, and and start to look over your notes and realize you're kind of tired right now. Um, let's get a cat nap in. You get a cat nap in and wake up and go over things again, and and you head over and think, I get to preach the Word of God again twice in a day. Wow, this is wonderful. And to see your faces again and... And we were even on the way over, Grant and I, talking about the dynamics of preaching and how it's, you know, emotionally tiring um, because you're engaged and mentally you're engaged and you're editing and saying things and don't say that and, and, and maybe cut that out. And, and even what I shared with you at the end about that Spurgeon quote, it's one of my favorites. I actually have it in my office um, framed and I've only used it several times in all the years that I've had it because just the weightiness of it, you know, it's not like you just pull that out. Oh, I, I need to end a sermon. Let me pull out that Spurgeon quote. And even I wasn't sure if I was going to do it then, but I just felt the moment was right. And I love how you then changed even the song and how great is the father's love for us, which is really exemplary. So I come to you again, and it's this message that I have is going to, I believe, connect to even what we shared this morning. And the title of the message is this, Jesus the Model Missionary. Jesus the Model Missionary. And let me pray as we get started. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come again to um, teach your word, to help these dear people understand you better and Um, Even ahead of time, I ask for forgiveness for what I may say that um, may confuse the issue. I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, um, overpower that and give grace to the hearers in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, Jesus, the model missionary, and it's going to tie into what I shared with you this morning from Isaiah 55, I'm sorry, 57, 15. And this idea that God is a transcendent God, but God is also an imminent God. He desires to dwell with us, but he will only deal with those that are contrite and lowly. Um, I, I don't know how many times I must have emphasized the reality that this can only be true because of what Jesus Christ has done. Uh, the suffering servant has succeeded as Isaiah 53 and 13 says, Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up. He will succeed. And here we see how did he succeed? In this lesson, um, Jesus the model missionary. And I want to give you seven examples of how Jesus was the model missionary. Because I want to present to you this evening, again, the person of Jesus Christ and the mission of that means the most. We might even say the person and mission that means the most in life because they represent the very purpose of our lives. That is to be more like Christ and also the mission, which is to be evangelists in the world. So the most important person in our life, Jesus Christ, I know you would agree. The most important mission in life is to be an evangelist, to be a missionary, even ourselves. When we think about Um, even the purpose behind this church being here. Its very existence is that, 
to win the lost, to win sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at these seven features of Jesus Christ, and hopefully they, they will motivate you to love the Lord more. They'll motivate you to serve him more. And they'll also give you some instruction to say, I can follow that example of Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, I can be a missionary as well. As a matter of fact, it it really is better to state, and not that you can be a missionary, you are a missionary. We're all a part of a royal priesthood. You are an evangelist. The question is now, I want to be the most effective missionary and evangelist possible. And I'm hoping that this message is going to be attractive, I mean, to your hearts, teachable hearts. And and I trust that you all have teachable hearts. You wouldn't be here otherwise. There are other things that one could be doing right now, but you're here to hear the word of God. And, and And I believe that God wants you to be here and that you hear from his word. This message even ties into when you think about um, your vision or your purpose statement and those three E's. And what are those three E's? To exalt, uh, to equip, and to evangelize. And when the preaching of the word of God goes forth, that's exalting Jesus Christ. We even earlier this morning heard about how exalted Jesus Christ is, how much God is. And then this idea to equip, uh, the equipping comes when the word of God is preached, when you go to Sunday school class, when you go to training, all the things that you do. But ultimately the end is what? Evangelism. So we don't sing as we sang earlier and we sang this morning. Uh, We don't exalt just for exaltation's sake. And we don't equip so that we can be trained and, and it's all anal, we understand things better, this is very good, it's very academic. It has to have some end. What's the end result? Why do I do this? Why do I exalt? Why do I equip? I do all of this to that third E that we might evangelize. That's why we're here. Why did Jesus come? Even as we saw in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, as one who is high and exalted, who's um, whose throne is high and lifted up, whose name is holy. But he says, I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly in the heart of the contrite. There's purpose behind that. And so there's purpose for your life, for your very existence. And it's a great privilege that you have. Think about it for a moment that you can be a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ the very creator of the universe. And so that's the connection for us. It was the great missionary C.T. Studd that said this. C.T. Studd said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If we draw that conclusion and and agree with what Studd has said, Let's just pause for a moment. If he is God, he died for me. What sacrifice is truly too great for him? There is none. None whatsoever. And that's why he gave his life to great missionary work. Here's the first example that we can follow in Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus was the model missionary because he displayed great fortitude. He displayed great fortitude. And we're going to look at two accounts, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, and we're also going to pay attention to Luke 9, 51 is the basis for that thought. So Jesus, fortitude. Why was he a great evangelist, a great missionary? Fortitude. Go Start with me for a moment. Go. Let's start in John chapter 5. 
go to John 5, and we're going to go through John for a moment to see this idea that Jesus Christ was totally committed to obey the Father. John 5 and 17. John 5 and 17, what does it say? But he answered, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Then in verse 19, what does Jesus say? Uh, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Notice, if you will, in verse 43 of John chapter 5, 43, I've come in my Father's name, and I do not receive me, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So the emphasis here, I've come in my Father's name on my Father's mission. Look at chapter 10 of John, chapter 10 of John. In verse 17, 10, 17, and what does it tell us there? John 10, 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Verse 18, he says, what? This commandment I receive from my father. Go over to John chapter 12. We see this emphasis there as well. John 12, 27, excuse me. Um, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, notice that word, for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 14, 31. Pay attention to that as well. John 14, 31. What does Christ say here? But that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. You see the same thought in John 18, 11. You see it in 18, 29. In 18:29, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So we notice a pattern that is clear in these verses. What motivates Jesus? Well, what motivates Jesus is this unique and loving relationship with his Father. He wants to please his Father. And this idea of father is unique, even a unique feature of John. Why do I say that? If you were just to study or do um, a concordance search of the word of father in the Gospels, you would go to Mark and you would see father four times. You would go to Luke and you would see father six times. You would go to Matthew and you would see father 23 times. And what's interesting about that? Of those 23 occurrences in Matthew, you would find 17 of them just in the Sermon on the Mount. Because often Christ is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, my father knows your will. My father who is in secret, pray to your father. Uh, My father who cares for the lilies. It's concentrated there in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we come to John's Gospel, and this emphasis is so clear there. Now, four times, six times, 23 times, in John's Gospel, 107 times. John is trying to give us a message, isn't he? Jesus is following the Father's will. Jesus loves the Father. Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father. And so he has this fortitude about him, is what's being communicated. Hebrews chapter 5, I said this is one of our our base texts of what this point here about fortitude. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but if you were to notice verse um, 8 and 
Hebrews chapter 5, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. He suffered, but yet there was fortitude. And notice, if you will, turn with me to um, Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, we see this fortitude, and we think about fortitude, it means the idea that one is focused, one is concentrated. Um, they, have, they have a great sense of determination. Nothing is going to deter them, deter them from the goal that is in front of them. And in Luke 9, 51, we see it demonstrated there. Um, yeah. Okay, he says, yes. In 951, when the days were approaching for his dissension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So the Nazby says he was determined to go. Um, those that may have a new King James would say he, he steadfastly set his face to go. Um, the ESV, so for those of you that may have an ESV, is going to say he set his face. The NIV says he, he resolutely set out to Jerusalem. So resolved. And what's interesting, if you were to look at Luke 16, look with me for a moment in Luke 16. Luke 16, 26, we see the use of this word here. And it gives us some picture to what's communicated in this parable. In Luke 16, 26, it says this, um, the rich man in Lazarus. Now, if we look at verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted and you are in agony. Notice verse 26. And besides all this between us, there is a great chasm fix so that those who wish to come over here from here will not be able and none may cross over from there to us. It's fixed. And that's the word that's used in those other examples of being resolved, being determined. And here in Luke 20, I'm sorry, Luke 16, 26, when it says it's fixed, it says it's impossible to change it. One cannot go from heaven to hell and, and hell to heaven. It's fixed. And so when Jesus says he was determined to go to Jerusalem, he had the sense of fortitude. My eyes are fixed on that goal. Nothing can possibly cause me to sway away from that is what's being communicated. And the Old Testament backdrop for this example is what we said even this morning about the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember um, in Isaiah 50 and verse 7, and what does it say? For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. So the backdrop to this statement in Luke is Isaiah again, Isaiah 50 verse 7 says, I've set my face like flint, I will not be ashamed. Of course he won't be ashamed, because remember later on, the statement is made that my servant will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. But it also says in, what is it, in verse 6 of Isaiah 50, he gave his back uh, for beatings. He was determined. And that's always fascinating to me when you think about it for a moment, that Jesus Christ, he is fixed on this goal, and that goal is to go and to die. I mean, he is, this is God, 
of God. But he realizes the agony that he's going to face. And not only the physical agony, but somehow this psychological, emotional agony of in that moment being separated from his father. He fully knows that, but yet he has set his face like flint. Nothing can deter him from it. I mean, there may be things in life when we, we know that perhaps we're facing some trial or tribulation that's in front of us, but we don't fully understand the magnitude of it. Uh, right now, my, I mentioned before, um, some of you talked to me, and when we visited, uh, it was a great time to visit when we did on our vacation um, in the summer and came and, and sat and enjoyed some time with you. And my sons are with me, and both of them are headed to the military right now, both you know, they're going to f- graduate in May from the masters, both mis- business majors, but they determined this course of action to be Marines and to be in the infantry. And even last night when my, one of my sons picked me up from the airport, we we're talking about that and we we're talking about um, rules of engagement and how things are so different right now. What, what has to go by? And, and he talked about now he's getting prepared for land navigation and, and things like that. And it says, yeah, we talked about certain Marines that had been killed and what was the basis of this movie called Lone Survivor. And we discussed that. But here's this reality. We're discussing, you know, life and death. And, and they know, and their poor mom has worked through it, I think, that, you know, but they're determined. And they've gotten past that stage when they were little boys where it was sort of like a computer game. Oh, let's play Army Man. And they realize that people die. But they're fixed. And even, and Joanna can tell you, she said she at one point in time when they, they were gravitating toward it, she thought she could talk them out of it. And they literally sat her down and says, Mom, we're men. <laughs> and this is what we're going to do. This is our course in life. And she had to surrender that to, to the Lord. And even my, my boys, they don't, they could both serve that maybe they say they'll do eight years and, and come out and they could come out and be fine and go on to their next career in life. See, they don't really know. But Jesus Christ knew. He knew there was going to be rejection. He knew there was going to be spitting in the face. He knew there was going to be the beatings. He knew there was going to be the rejection. He knew there was going to be nails. He knew there was going to be the horror of the darkness. And he knew he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, that's something different. Possibility versus absolutely have full knowledge of the suffering that I'm going to face. But he showed fortitude. See, we, a great missionary, shows fortitude. Um, Jesus' fortitude was manifested in this second feature of his life, and it is this. Number two, Jesus was the model missionary because he displayed dependence on the Father. Great dependence on the Father. Jesus demonstrates his life of dependence, although he was fully God, equally divine to the Father. How would he demonstrate it? Well, he did it through a life of prayer consecrated prayer we see in the life of Jesus Christ that he would go to the mountain he would go early he would go alone he would go often and even he went when he was in agony there at Gethsemane and what was he doing he was praying why must we pray if we're going to be any sort of evangelist any sort of true genuine growing 
believer, we must have prayer because prayer does what? It provides strength for our life. It gives us insight. It gives us guidance. It brings conviction for us. It helps conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also a statement that, Lord, I need you. (laughs) I don't have the answers. And if I would ask for a raising of hands right now and to say, how many of you have been in a stage in life or stages in life when you said, God, I don't have the answers. And then you have to go to your heavenly father and you go in prayer and say, I don't have the answers. I'm seeking you out. Prayer develops spiritual intimacy because then we talk to this great God who is transcendent, but yet he hears us and he desires to hear us because now he even dwells in us. We should be praying, if we're going to be good missionaries, we should be praying for receptive hearts that people would hear the gospel. We should be praying that the innocent would be um, protected. We should be praying that walls of interference with the gospel would be broken down. We should be praying that leaders would be changed and God would raise up leaders, other people in this church, so that this church can grow and be an example of others in this community. And you could reach many people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be a part of your prayers. We might look in history and one would never find any revival that was not closely associated with, grounded in prayer. It was a A.W. Tozier said, to desire revival and at the same time to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. We wish for it, we want it, and we may, to a certain degree, may want it sincerely, but if we're not going to be committed to prayer, there's a question about our sincerity. Jesus Christ set the example for us, fully God, but yet what did he do? Often he would pray. He would go to the mountain and pray. He would go early and pray. And even when in agony, he would pray. So the question is, do you have your mountain? Do you have that time where you go to the Father and you pray for your elders here and for your leaders here, for your own soul, for your friends, for your loved ones, for your enemies, that God would be glorified? Yeah. So consider that. Um, Hudson Taylor said this we must move men through God by prayer how do you how does someone change God changes them but then we ask for the Lord to change that person see there is a connection between um, what we believe about the Bible and prayer what, what do I mean by that? Um, all of us here would say we believe in inerrancy. God's word is absolutely inerrant. And then if we say we believe in inerrancy, we believe everything that Jesus Christ said in the Bible. And if we believe everything that he said, we believe what he said about hell, the reality of hell, eternal punishment, separation from God, everlasting darkness. We accept that because we accept everything in the Bible. And then we would reject views that um, people have come up with to excuse hell. There is a a metaphorical view. Well, um, hell is just a metaphor for evil. It really isn't an actual place. We reject this annihilation view that says, well, uh, no, man will die, but God will annihilate them all. There will not be eternal suffering. 
We reject this newly developing restoration view that God, because of his love, he is ultimately going to restore all men to himself. We reject that all because we believe what the scripture says about hell. Every fiber of us believes that. Because God is holy, we have to believe that. Man has rejected God's holiness and they have sought after things that are unlike God. We accept God's kindness, but we have to accept hell as well because man has rejected the kindness of God. Remember what Titus said, that the kindness of God has appeared. And, and when Titus is talking about that appearance, he's talking about a person. Men have rejected that person, therefore hell is necessary. And so we should be praying that God would open the eyes of people. You know, this morning... Um, I talked about making this um, trip to Singapore, and I I took the Uber to the airport, and I took the other Uber, um, you know, back to the airport. And I told you this on the second trip, I talked to the person about Hinduism, and for 25 minutes we're going back and forth about the need for Christ. But let me fill in the, the rest of the story. And this is where prayer and even the connection with hell you'll understand. So on the first trip, uh, as I'm going from the airport to the hotel, I'm just talking to the person that mentioned. He told me about things to do and see. And, and I got out of the um, Uber and said, oh, thank you, great service. I'll give you a tip. I'll give you five stars and you know, that sort of thing. Went to my room and I thought, I don't believe in hell. I mean, I don't believe in hell. I had this man in the car with me for 25 minutes. Why don't I believe in hell? Yes, I've argued against the metaphorical view. And I've argued against the view that says that God will annihilate. And I've argued against the restoration view. But I don't really believe in hell. How is it possible? I had someone in my car or in his car for 25 minutes. And I'm here, quote, as a minister of the gospel. And I'm here actually to see missionaries. Why don't I believe in hell? And I prayed and I went to my room and I said, Lord, help me to believe in hell. The reality that people will spend an eternity separated from you. What sort of missionary am I? And I prayed. Since I'm an inheritor, God, I believe your word is true. And I pray that God helped me to believe it. And that's why when I got back in that, that next Uber, before we got out of the parking lot, friend, let's talk for a moment. <laughs> and it really was that. And I got out and I, we talked and I shared the gospel. And what's great about it, because it was Uber, I can now look at my past history and, I, and there's his name and his face and I can pray for him. And I got out of the car and says, Lord, thank you for helping me to believe in hell. Now, Jesus was the great missionary, and he showed fortitude, absolutely. But there was this dependence on the Father, and we have to do that through prayer. And sometimes we should be praying for our own souls and our own shortcomings, that God help me to be like Christ. Number three, how was he a great missionary? Number three, Jesus was a model missionary because he displayed genuine concern for people. Genuine concern for people. And this dependence 
of God shown in his prayer. And when we think about concern for people, let me just focus on one aspect because there's so much, I mean, one could say, and it's just going to be this compassion. Jesus, Jesus showed compassion for people. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9. Go to Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, what does Jesus Christ say there? Matthew 9 and 13, Jesus says, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call what? Sinners. Compassion is what I desire. And also in Matthew 9 and 36, and seeing the multitudes, it says, Jesus felt compassion for them. Compassion. What does it mean to have compassion? The word is, is a very literal word, especially in the Hebrew backdrop. It means the, the inward parts that are stirred towards a person, that we feel something towards them is what it's communicating. What's interesting, and let me read this, it says, outside the original parables of Jesus, there is no instance of the word being used of men. It is always used to describe the attitude of Jesus and it characterizes the divine nature of his acts, always of Christ. But we know we're to grow in compassion because that's also representative of a fruit of the Spirit. It's representative of of us growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To have compassion, our heart goes out to people. Jesus often was moved with compassion, but we will learn about Jesus Christ. When he was moved with compassion, he did something. So moved with compassion, and he touched, and he healed, and he taught, and he fed. And so with us, we must have that same mindset. But not just to give a man a loaf of bread. It is more than that. Compassion for their soul and realizing that they are without God. Sometimes we can think about compassion, and we should have compassion for the poor and the destitute. Absolutely. But will we have compassion for the lost homosexual? I mean, will we have compassion for the deviant apostate? I mean, will we have compassion for the confused transgender person? Will we have compassion for that cult member that is caught up in error? Will our heart go out to them? And I think one way that the enemy has in one sense duped the church is that we can so often... um, separate ourselves from the world. And what do I mean by that? Obviously, we're to be separated. We've established that um, before. But we say so much about, oh, the homosexual community. Obviously, clearly wrong. Transgenderism. I can't believe it. Look what's happening to our society. Absolutely wrong. But do you have any compassion for their souls? And I think what has happened is the enemy creates this moralism within the church. And so then we look at other sinners and we say, look at these sinners, they're so bad. But we lose compassion for them. Where would we all be if God had no compassion for us? I think it's an absolute, in one sense, a brilliant strategy of the enemy. Let's just create so much separation and so much disdain for these other people who are not like the people in the church that they lose compassion and they're indifferent towards them and even at times just angry towards them. Number four is this. Jesus was the model evangelist and missionary because he understood and accepted his goal. 
He understood it and accepted his goal. Luke 2, 49, I must be about my father's what? Business. And in my father's house, he understood it. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. John 10, 18, this is the commandment I receive. John 16, 7, if I do not go away, the helper cannot come. John 18, 11, the cup which the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? There was clarity to his mission. He knew perfectly what the Father wanted him to accomplish. He was to die to give his life as a ransom for many so that people in the church would have life and they would have that life and live that life so that they can reach others that they might have life. Um, So people that I've traveled the world and seen and missionaries that I've seen and whether it be in South Africa or in um, Central America or in parts of Asia, Latin America that need the gospel. The clarity of mission. Notice John 12. Let's go back there again. John 12. We already noted verse 27. He says, for this purpose I have come. But notice verse 32 in John 12. John 12. So he says in verse 27, but for this purpose I have come. To this very hour that I would give my life. Father, glorify your name is what he states in verse 28. But notice verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will do what? I will draw all men to myself. Clarity of purpose. And you can understand, we must, that is, we must understand that clarity, but without acceptance is going to accomplish nothing. Because one may have the sense of clarity. Well, I understand what I'm supposed to do, but I don't accept it. I don't accept the mission. Christ understood the mission, but he also accepted it. I mean, a person can be presented with an opportunity, and you can say, do you understand? Yes, I understand. Do you accept? No, I do not. (laughs) I don't. Even this new role that I'm taking on at the seminary, the dean of students, they asked me to take it on. I said, well, do you understand the new role? I said, yes, I do. Do you accept it? No, I do not. <laughs> and, I, and I was up front. I said, no, I, I don't like the way, you know, well, I did, so I may as well keep going. Um, I don't really, the way that it's done now, I don't think it fits me. I like this. How about this idea? And I said, sure, um, you have the freedom to do those things. Okay, great. I accept the mission. So we had clarity, but I hadn't accepted it. And then once we get further clarity, I accept it now. What is your mission? I don't think there is a question about clarity here. Like, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Why do I exist? That's not really the question, is it? It's our acceptance of the mission. Will you accept the mission? And anything that we accept, that we want to do, it must bring glory to God. I mean, this is true throughout history, right? Amy Carmichael, in her ministry in India, she accepted the mission. I mean, David Livingston, he traveled about 30,000 miles in exploring and missionary work. He accepted the mission. I mean, think about a David Brainerd and all the illnesses and um, the elements that he fought against as he would reach Native Americans. He accepted the mission. I mean, William Kerr, when he would break new ground in India, he accepted the mission fully. 
and Hudson Taylor and others, and the list goes on and on and on, and other names that we will never hear about, people that accepted the mission. There was clarity. I go, I accept it. I move forward. And that's why in times past that missionaries, I mean, often when they went to the field, you probably know you've heard it before, they were thinking, I won't come back again. I mean, and when I was on that plane to Singapore, I thought this is great. United Airlines started the first, you know, um, nonstop LAX right into Singapore. I mean, 17 and a half, well, 16 and a half hours. You're in Singapore. Wow. And you think about missionaries in the past, uh, maybe four months, and you're dealing with the elements and sickness and everything else, and, and at times even longer than that. And on one of those ships, I mean, I went down there, saw, I was there, I don't know, what, 42 hours, and I turned around again. And I'm back home, ready to preach on Sunday. These people understood. Here's my mission I accepted. But see, I, and this is where I have to be careful sometimes that, you know, as preachers, we may pull from the past and, and we pull in these names of these great people of the faith. But... Um, God is calling you to be that missionary here. God is to reach into Bakersfield because there are souls out there that you need to have compassion for. There are junior hires out there and high schoolers and college people and young adults and older adults and seniors that need the Lord. And they're homosexuals and they're cult members and they're transgender people. And as well, they're religious people who are out there that need the Lord. There's a successful businessman that needs the Lord. He needs Christ, and she needs Christ, and that mom needs Christ. And who's going to reach them? You are. You are the missionaries. You are the evangelists. You are the people that God is saying, here's your mission, accept it. Follow my example. Number five is this. Jesus was the model missionary because he displayed an uncompromising moral character. Uncompromising moral character. It was um, McShane that said, A godly minister is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. And I would say that a, a godly person, a godly believer, is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. So character is so important. I mean, in our age, we don't think as much about character as we should. We live in an age in which that's secondary. We think first about results, and we think about numbers, and not the person and who they are. We think personality, and we think charisma, the ability to gather people together. We think that is first, but it is character. Jesus had first, and we can look at it through two windows, Jesus had an absolute character. When we say an absolute character, it's what we were communicating earlier from Isaiah 57. Um, My name is Holy. See, that's absolute character. Nothing can change in his person. God is absolutely perfect. That is his absolute character. And then there is God's um, personal character. Our practical character, we might even say. What was the manifestation of his absolute character? How did he live? He lived this godly life that we saw in front of him. We, he lived a life of sacrifice and compassion and purity and purpose and dependence on the Lord. He dined with sinners. He, he reached to the outcasts of society. That was his practical character on display. 
which is really a demonstration of that absolute character inside. And that's why we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. God dwells in us, and as now we are uh, in this life trying to conform our lives to the image of Christ to live out what is really inside of us. Number six is this. Jesus was the model missionary because he displayed great skill in communicating his message. Great skill in communicating his message. Um, look with me at Mark chapter 6. Mark 6. Mark 6. And Mark 6 and 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. He was a great communicator. We see a similar thought in Matthew chapter 7, 28 and 29. Also in John 7, 40 to 49. This sense of how Jesus taught. He showed great skill. As a matter of fact, in John 7, um, they said of him in verse 40, certainly he is one of the prophets or he is the prophet. And remember when the religious leaders sent others to arrest him and Jesus spoke, they came back and they said, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, never has a man spoken as this man speaks. Something different about him. He showed great skill in communicating his message. He identified with humanity and then he used language. He used human language. I mean, when Jesus would speak in hyperbole or simile and he would use parables and discourse, it was all in a way to communicate with people, with human beings. He accommodated himself to us. And when he would use a metaphor and he would use things from nature so people could understand it and identify with it, that was his skill. And we need to develop in our skill to communicate with people the truth of God's word. Images that people can understand. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. But obviously it begins with speaking truth. Number seven is this. Our last point. Jesus was the model missionary or evangelist because he displayed great love in dying for his goal. Great love in dying for his goal. John fifteen thirteen, Familiar, right? Greater love has no man than this that one would lay down his life for his friends. Think about the irony of that statement. Hmm. That he would lay down his life for his friends, but clearly the scripture tells us that we were what? Enemies and sinners and ungodly. But he laid down his life for us. See, all these other points that we've made is really an evidence of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave God loved, so he showed compassion. God loved, so there was fortitude. God loved, so there was dependence. God loved because then there is clarity and there is acceptance of the goal. He was driven by this love of the Father. Our love for God should motivate us to accept this goal and to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. His love for us is not in question, right? And it's evident that he loves us. It's amazing that he loves us 
And I do truly pray. And if I ever come back again, you'll probably hear me say again, I do pray that I'll never forget that. This is the love of God, to bask in the love of God, this reality that he loves you. And what's unfortunate is this, because now even in evangelical circles, we hear a number of people who have now misunderstood the love of God and they've used the love of God supposedly in this naive theology to say there can't be a hell, therefore there isn't a hell. And that's sort of the basis of this restoration view that God is going to restore all things to himself because of his great love. And then sometimes what it does, it makes um, those that are Bible-believing people, now uh, we don't want to talk about God's love that much because these other people have twisted God's love. What are you, are you kidding me? How can you not talk about the love of God? Just because this person has twisted it, God's love is absolutely foundational. For God is what? Love. Preach it all the more. But we preach it in the context of everything else that we say. C.T. Studd, whom I mentioned earlier, was driven as a missionary. And as I said earlier, his great quote that says, if Jesus be God and he died for me, what sacrifice is too great for me to make for him? But listen how he ended his life. As his life was coming to an end, he gave a last backward look at his life in a letter that he sent home. And he said this, as I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in. They are these. Number one, that God called me to China and I went in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Number two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young ruler to act. And we know what Christ told him. Give up all of this and follow me. Number three, that I deliberately, at the call of God, went alone on the baby liner in 1910, gave up my life for this work, which was to be henceforth not for the sedan only, but for the whole unevangelized world. My only jo- joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it. Shortly after at 10.30 p.m. on July, on a day in July 1931, C.T. Studd went home to be with the Lord, whom he loved, it says, so dearly and served so faithfully. And it says his last word, the last word of C.T. Studd, who served in China and in Africa as well, his last word was hallelujah. That's the way to end a life, isn't it? I think about the last words of our Savior on the cross. He says, it is what? Finished. It is finished. Father, thank you. Help us to finish this life, this course that we're on. To be, as Paul said, to fight the good fight, to finish the course. And we can only do it by grace even the, the points that are made here to follow Christ in this way, I, I, I don't believe there's anyone here today that would not want to do it. So give them grace. Give me grace. Give us all grace that we can follow Christ and be like Christ. Be determined like Christ. Set our face like flint like Christ. 
And we can come to the end of our life and to be able to write a sweet letter and say, here's my true joy that what God has given me to do, I have not refused it. And to be able to say hallelujah. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.